of Titus, we have been uh, going through a series on the book of Titus. We're now coming to uh, the end of chapter 2, and we're going to pick up again where we left off the last time uh, at verse 11. Titus chapter 2, you'll find it on page 1199 of the church Bibles. Let me pray before we read. Father in heaven, we thank you once more that you are a good God. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. And we ask now that as we hear your word, you would speak to us, that you would uh, encourage our hearts, renew our minds, and open our ears that we may hear and know the message of your truth. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So Titus 2, verses 11 uh, to the end. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, it's the uh, age-old question that comes up again and again uh, on the radio programs. Uh, One I listen to is Five Live uh, in the mornings. Can people change? Can people who have done really bad things actually change? Can society manage these people in such a way as to make them change? Recently we've seen uh, the debates about how best to manage criminals. Do prisons work? Or do we need more rehabilitation work so that these criminals are changed for the better and can become integrated again into society? Can people change their ways? Or is, are we all uh, just slaves to the chemical imbalances in our brains? Is change an illusion or only possible with drugs or an operation? Are we simply, as human beings, biological machines which are hardwired in specific ways? Some are hardwired to do bad things, and so there's no hope for them unless you can change the chemistry. Or maybe it's all the fault of society and the social environment that we grew up in. So bad things are not the fault of those who do them, but they're the fault of the social environment that they grew up in. The reason why some people get involved in drugs and crime is that they grew up in a deprived area with little or or no education. So the way to change them, of course, more education. You have a problem with teenage pregnancy? How do you change that? More education. Yet we have more education than we've ever had in this country, and the crime rate still grows, and the teenage pregnancy rate still goes up and shows no signs of changing. Can people really change? And what's more, what motivates people to change? Drugs? More education? Better social environment? Fear of punishment? 
possibility of reward? All of these things mixed together? When I was uh, in high school, after my third year, we had a change of headmaster. And with the change of headmaster came a change in the way that the school was disciplined. No longer was bad behavior punished, rather good behavior was rewarded. It had interesting results. When I think back on it now, it was incredible what what happened. Beforehand, there were always these uh, macho fights in the school grounds and things like that, and there was hustle and bustle and that kind of stuff. When you did something wrong, you got a ticket and you had to write out lines, or if it was really bad, you sometimes got a detention. After the change uh, of headmaster, uh, that type of problem actually stopped, the, the major fights. It stopped. But the attitude of the pupils to their teachers took a complete turn for the worse. The fight stopped, but the respect for the teachers ended. Classroom discipline was terribly difficult. Was it better? Can people really change? Or can society really change people? Now, no doubt our society will go on debating what the Bible already has an answer to. For as Christians, we are people who believe in change. We believe that people can and do change. It's at the very heart of everything we believe, that people, no matter how bad or far gone we think they are, they can change. The very heart of the gospel is about change. The change that God brings when he intervenes in our lives. The change that affects every part of our lives and our motivations. And in this passage this morning, in Titus chapter 2, we find Paul explaining, laying out for us in such clear terms exactly how that change comes about. So there are three things I think we need to see in this. Firstly, we need to see grace changes our lives. Secondly, grace changes the way we live. And thirdly, grace changes our future. Titus, uh, in, in chapter 2 of, of this book, Paul had been laying out the, for the, uh, the various things that Titus was to teach to the church in Crete uh, regarding what, what corresponded to or what came from his gospel. And he addresses his teaching to all types of people in the church, the older men and the younger men, the older women, the younger women, and to slaves. Everyone was included regardless of their sex, regardless of their age, regardless of their status. All these people were to live lives that were worthy of the gospel. All these people were to live lives that would adorn the gospel. And so people outside the church would see these good lives and be attracted to the church. Paul's vision, if we may put it that way, was one of gospel communities, that buzzword, uh, gospel communities in every village and town on the island of Crete. All having that message of the gospel at the very center of all they were, with leaders who were able to to, uh, teach and encourage others in the gospel, defended against anything which was not the gospel. And coming from that teaching, the people were to live lives that corresponded to that message. They were to be be in their conduct, uh, to live such way in their conduct, to stand out from the pagan environment that surrounded them. So older men were to be models of self-control for the younger men. 
Older women were to demonstrate that same holiness of life to the, to the younger women and teach them to manage their households well. But why were they to do this? What was the motivation for this change of lifestyle in the church? Well, that's what Paul lays out in verses 11 to 14. Because the conduct, the duty of Christians to live this way comes from their understanding of the doctrine, of the message of the gospel that they believe. Paul usually, in his letters, would give the doctrine first and then follow it with all the ethical behavior that needed to flow from it. So a great example is Romans. Paul sends the first 11 chapters, not exclusively, but mostly on the doctrine and what the church is to believe. And then in verse 12, he gives the great, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is what you do in response. But here it goes the other way around. He detailed the conduct that he expects in the church. And then in verse 11, we get the for or because. The reason why they are to act like this. Because the grace of God that brings salvation has been revealed to all men. The motivation that caused these people to change the way they live is the grace of God. Grace that that unmerited favor of God, grace, that gift of God that comes to us in the gospel that Paul preached, that Titus preached. Grace is what changes them. You see, Paul is not preaching a legalistic gospel. Do these things and you will be okay in God's eyes. Live this way and you'll earn your way up on the ladder and get to the top floor. Do these type of things and somehow you'll be accepted. You'll be saved. No, that's not the motivation here for Christians to live this way. Still less is Paul interested in a cheap grace version of the gospel. God has saved you. It doesn't matter what you do now. Just live how you like. No, what Paul is saying is that they are to live in accord with healthy doctrine because God has already brought them salvation. Salvation as a gift. That is to say, they've already been put on the top floor. So don't try and walk down the ladder to walk back up it again. God has graciously saved you. He has given you salvation. He has poured out His grace and changed you. Therefore, live in accordance with the message of that grace. If you think that Christianity is all about being good to get God's favor, then think again. It's quite the opposite. The message of of Christianity is that God has acted graciously and brought us salvation. He has changed us. So we can't earn it, for we already have it. You can't add to it or take away from it. It's done. It's dusted. It's finished. So we live not to earn it all over again, but to please the one who made it possible in the first place. But how, friends, do we get this grace of God that brings salvation? Well, the answer comes in that little word, appeared. God's grace has appeared. How can grace appear? How can grace be seen? The word appear here is used of something that has been hidden and has now come to light. Like the sun that rises in the morning and, then, and it's hidden until at dawn you begin to see the light over the horizon and then it appears. God, God's grace has appeared. How? 
How has God's grace appeared? God is always gracious. That is who he is. His character is to be the generous God. But how does his grace appear? Well, verse 14, it appears in Jesus. God's grace comes to us in the clearest way through Jesus Christ. He was the one, John said, in the first chapter of his gospel, who came full of grace and truth. The salvation that comes to us comes to us in the person of Jesus, in in his incarnation, in his death and in his resurrection. We see displayed for us, for all men, the glorious goodness, the graciousness of God. God has intervened in the history of humankind. He has acted to bring salvation for you, for me, for the Christians on Crete. And it's through Jesus that this grace is seen. How is that possible? How can God save us through Jesus? Verse 14, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. God has graciously acted. As Jesus gave himself, God's gift is Jesus giving of himself for us to redeem us. That is to purchase us. When you redeem something, you give over a price in order to get it back. So if you sold your your TV to the the pawnbroker and decided you wanted it back. You needed to go and offer the price that they wanted for it in order to get it back. You redeem it. So Jesus has redeemed us. He has acted by his death and resurrection to redeem us from our greatest problem, our wickedness, as the NIV translates it. More literally, it could be translated lawlessness. Our problem is that we are lawless. God has made this world. He has made it, uh, and he has put human beings in it to to live, to care for it. He has made it to function in a way that is in accordance with his own character, with his own will. But that's the big problem, isn't it? That's the big problem for us. We don't want to be functionaries of God's purpose. We want to have our own purpose. We want to make our own rules. We want to be independent of anything that seems to hold us down from doing what we want. We're lawless. We live in God's world. We enjoy all the blessings that he gave us, but we don't really want to do or have anything to do with God. We want rid of God. We want rid of his rules. We want to make our own rules. Imagine for a moment that the city of Dundee all of a sudden decided to declare itself independent of Scotland. Started to print its own money, issue its own stamps, elect its own government, make its own rules regardless of what Edinburgh or Westminster thought. They decided they would go it alone, just ignore the rest of the government, the rest of the country. They would be lawless, outlaws, failing to obey the government of the day. And that's exactly what we do when we fail to live live for God in his way. We fail to live with God as our Lord, with God as our ruler, with God as our king. When we disregard his laws and his purpose, We rebel against his rightful rule over us. As his creatures, we are lawless. And what happens to lawless people? They get punished. They deserve to be punished. They fail to live in accordance with the law. And God's punishment is death. Everlasting, eternal death. The wages of sin is death, said Paul in Romans. But you see, the wonderful news is God is generous. 
He is gracious. And he has graciously given us his salvation. His grace has come to us in Jesus to redeem us, to purchase us back for him. Jesus on the cross gave himself for us. The death he died, he died on our behalf. His sacrifice paid the price for our lawlessness, our wickedness. Our evil was dealt with on the cross. God in his generous mercy has purchased us. Even when we deserved to receive the full payment for our sins, God has accepted. God has accepted us in Jesus. He has acted to spare us. Our debts, our debts as sinners was more than we could possibly pay. As human beings, our sin debt was far worse than Greece or Italy. There was no way it could possibly be paid back. There was no earthly creditor who could bail us out. So God sent the man from heaven, and he bought our debts, and he gave us a new start. Jesus died to redeem us from all wickedness. And in his death, he has purified us. He has made us clean and holy, acceptable to God. In our sinful state, it's like we've rolled in the muck. We've made a mess of ourselves, our relationships, our world. Since Adam, we have been corrupted and defiled by our sinfulness, by our lawlessness. But on the cross, Jesus has purchased us, purified us from our sinful state. He has taken us, he has cleaned us up. He has given us new clothes to wear, robes of righteousness and holiness. His blood, his death has cleansed us, washed us, made us new. We no longer have to try and clean ourselves. For we are clean because of what he has done. Remember back to those false teachers in chapter 1 that Paul spoke of? They were very concerned with being clean, with being pure. They thought that such purity could be achieved by not eating certain foods or by keeping certain uh, feasts and festivals or certain rules and regulations. But the gospel tells us that we are clean because of Jesus, because he has purified us. We are pure people. Notice we are a new people. See the way Paul says this. Jesus has purified us for himself, a people who belong to him. See, you can't read this verse uh, 14 without being drawn back to the Old Testament, to the events of the Exodus where God redeemed Israel out of, out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt to be his own people, a holy people, who were pure, who were holy. The language Paul uses here is the same language that Moses used in the law to, to describe the people of Israel. You see, the church, God's people, are those who have experienced the real exodus, the real purification of which the first exodus was just a shadow. God has redeemed us in Christ from our bondage to sin, from our lawlessness. He has purified us to be a people for his own possession, a holy people, a people who now belong to him, no longer to ourselves, and who live in accordance with his character and his will. Not because we're trying to earn his favor somehow, by our actions, 
but because we are already his people. So, they, so we live like we are his people. Remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20? The most significant thing you can know about Exodus chapter 20 is that verse 2 comes before verse 3. Let me read verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on. See the significance of that? Verse 2 comes before verse 3. Verse 2, I have redeemed you. I have saved you. I have rescued you. I have brought you out of bondage to be my people. Verse 3, now live like it. Live the way you should. Live the way I command you. And that is the great order of the gospel. We have been saved. We have been redeemed and purified. We've been made into new people. So now we live in obedience to God. We live the way we were designed to live, with God as our creator and redeemer and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. That is what we do. You see, a poo bear takes care of his tummy. I can tell you that for definite. That's what a poo bear does. A baker bakes bread and scones. A farmer works the land, looks after animals. A teacher educates children. A student learns and reads for their degree. A Christian what does a Christian do? A Christian does good works. A Christian is devoted to what is good. Why? So that they can become holy and righteous? No, because they are holy and righteous. See, the gospel of God's grace changes our lives. It changes us from being slaves to sinfulness and ungodliness to being redeemed people who are right and holy in God's sight. It changes us from being corrupted individuals before a holy and just God in danger of his wrath to being a purified people who belong to God, a people who live with Jesus as their ruler and king and so in obedience to him. The gospel changes us from selfish service to service of others, from God's enemies to God's children. It changes our lives, our status, our whole understanding. And so because God has changed us, we are different. We are a new people. Grace changes the way we live in this life. My, uh, my uncle has a coolie dog, and he lives in the town. Uh, so the poor dog doesn't get, really get out that much. He doesn't have that much space to run about in. So, well, one day he brought him to, to our house at home in Northern Ireland when we're out, out in the countryside. And he let him off the leash and had a good run round uh, out into the fields. And when he came back, he discovered that the dog had enjoyed himself a little bit too much, for he rolled in cow's dung in the field. And he was stinking. And my uncle was furious because he didn't want to put him in the car because it was going to go everywhere and make a real plaster. So what he did was he tied him up and he turned the hose on him. And he washed the dog down. And then he let him dry off for a while. And then he let him off the leash again. And what did the dog do? straight back into the field and did exactly the same thing again. You see, friends, Jesus has not washed us clean by his death for us to go and roll in the mud again. He calls us now to live with him as our Lord and so live in a way that pleases him, that he wants for us. 
So says Paul, God's grace not only changes our lives, but it teaches us to live. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to turn away from anything that is ungodly, anything that God does not desire for us. Grace teaches us to repent away from our idols and false thinking and to turn back to the living and true God and to serve our neighbor. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions that surround us in our culture, to the systems of false thinking and understanding. Grace teaches us to think in a godly way about our world and about our place within it. To say no to these desires that would draw us away from a life of holiness. Grace teaches us to live lives where we take off the old self, the old man, and put on Christ. Put on the new man who has been made new after the image of Christ. So we say no to pornography. We say no to greed and exploitation of those less well off. We say no to lies and falsehoods, even if it costs us a lot. We say no to cheating on our tax return. We say no to laziness and slothful ways. And we work hard with our hands so that others won't be burdened with us. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We say no to ungodliness, but God's grace teaches us, or rather it trains us, to say yes to self-control. How often in this letter has Paul mentioned self-control? As Christ's own people, we have a proper control of ourselves and our passions and desires, not letting them control us, but rather bringing them under the lordship of Jesus Christ, just like all other aspects of our lives. Grace teaches us to be self-controlled and to live upright lives as well. That is upright, honorable lives in our relationships with other people. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So we don't steal from them. We don't lie to them. We don't covet their property, commit adultery with their wives or husbands. We live rightly. We live righteously. And we live godly lives. We live in a way that honors God and glorifies Him. That is the way human beings were designed to live. Francis Schaeffer once said it this way, we live deliberately as a creature before our Creator. Deliberately as a creature before our Creator. We enjoy what He has given us. We give thanks to Him for it. We obey Him in what He desires for us. We present our bodies as living sacrifices. We live lives worthy of the calling which He has called us to. In short, we repent and we believe in His Son and we live for Him as a child, a child of God. Not for ourselves, but for Christ. God's grace changes us. It teaches us to live in this present age as we wait for the end of the age to come. Yes, we will struggle with sin and with temptation, but as grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to commit our lives to Christ, our Lord, and our King.
And so we live eager lives or zealous lives, verse 14. We are zealots for what is good. That is who we are as Christ's new people. We are made new, redeemed, purified by God, free by His free unmerited grace in Christ. And as new people, we are zealous for what is good in this present age. And in this present age, as we live, we wait with hope for Christ's second coming in glory. For we know that when He comes again, that same grace that changes us has also changed our future as well. That's one of the the wonderful things about being part of Christ's people. You get to know a little bit about your future. We don't know when Christ will return, but we know what will happen when He does. For as we live in this age, waiting for the final restoration of His kingdom, we wait to hear those great words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we know we'll hear them not because we have earned it by being good people, but because God has changed us. He has redeemed us in Christ. And so we already know the end verdict. And so we, know we live now in this age with that hope as citizens not of this world, but of the world to come. We live as citizens of heaven who are zealous for what is good. My friends, if you are a Christian today, then that is your story. That is my story. God has changed us in Christ. He has made us new. He continues to change us by His grace as we live for Him. Turning away from self to a life towards God as we wait for the final restoration at the end when our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will return in glory. God's grace changes our lives, changes the way we live, and it changes our future. Maybe you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian. Well, you see, this is great news for you because God can change you too. You can be redeemed, purified. You can become part of God's people. He can change your future and give you hope in the gospel. All you need to do is believe in that gospel, to come to God and acknowledge your sinfulness, your lawlessness. Repent. Turn away from that life. Believe in Jesus and what He has done for you on that cross. And then live with Jesus as your Lord, as your ruler. Allowing the gospel of God's grace to change you. As it has changed the Christians on Crete that Titus was to teach. As it has changed and continues to change countless people the world over. No matter how bad you think you are. No matter how unreligious you are. That's probably a good thing. No matter if you're male or female, rich or poor, slave or free, young or old, conservative or labor. The gospel is for you. For, my friends, God's grace has been revealed in Jesus. And it brings salvation for everyone who is willing to come to him in repentance and in faith. And it is my prayer that that will be so for you today. Let us pray. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. 
That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.